Thank you for tuning in to the Movie Geeks United Anniversary Series. In this episode, we've pulled our 2008 interviews with cinematographer Claudio Miranda and composer Alexander Desplat. Both of these artists were brought on to discuss their work, alongside David Fincher, on the epic fable, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Promise me he has a place. You never know who's coming for you. Go back for a moment, take your mind off that. <laughs> what in God's name? Infirmity's not of a newborn, but of a man well in his 80s on his way to the grave. He's dying? Of old age. Oh, God in heaven. He looks just like my ex-husband. My name is Benjamin. Benjamin Barton. How old are you? Seven. But I look a lot older. God bless you. He's seven. <laughs> Benjamin, this is my granddaughter, Daisy. Are you sick? They said I was going to die soon, but maybe not. You're odd. You got your sea legs about you, old man? I think. He gives me the willies. That is not for me. Benjamin, come on. Okay. Benjamin! Where are you going? Oh, to see. I'll send you a postcard. Write me a postcard from everywhere. You haven't been with many women, have you? Well. I'm not dressed. Oh, you look splendid. Just as you are. Anybody doesn't want to go to war, now's the time to say so. Fellas! Queenie, it's a funny thing coming home. Oh, sweet Jesus! You realize what's changed. Benjamin. Is you. Is somebody looking for me? Hi. Benjamin, what are you doing here? I thought come here to sweep you off your feet or something. This is my life. We are almost the same age. We're meeting in the middle. Well, I was thinking how nothing lasts. What a shame that is. Some things last. Good night, Daisy. Good night, Benjamin. Tonight, we celebrate the curious case of Benjamin Button, which opens nationwide Christmas Day. This magical and poetic film is based upon a short story by F. Scott Fitzgerald, and it's about a man who was born in his 80s and ages backward observing the full course of an exceptionally colorful life along the way. This was a story so enigmatic and yet filled with such possibilities that it took many decades to craft just the right adaptation. And now, thanks to an amazing roster of talents, including screenwriter Eric Roth, director David Fincher, stars Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett, and the wonderful talents on our show tonight, they have done it. We begin tonight with a cinematographer of the film, Mr. Claudio Miranda, an artist who has quite a history with director David Fincher, having collaborated with him on the film Seven, Fight Club, The Game, and Zodiac prior to Benjamin Button. This extraordinary talent expresses Benjamin's epic journey with profound, detailed, and deeply moving imagery that will live in the hearts and minds of moviegoers for many, many years to come. 
and it is a great pleasure to welcome Claudio Miranda to Movie Geeks United. Mr. Miranda, hello. Hey. That's quite an intro. I, you know, I haven't had an intro quite like that. So. <laughs> well, well, we appreciate you coming on very much. We're very thrilled to have you here. Uh, let me start off by getting a sense from you of of uh, what first drew you to, to cinema and, and being a cinematographer in particular. When did that occur? Well, you know, I, you know, it's kind of strange. I, I think I'm unlike a lot of people where, you know, this this kind of just kind of it kind of opened up its doors for me. You know, I, you know, I was, you know, I gaffed some movies for for, for Fincher, you know, and mm-hmm. Fight Club and those movies, and I, and I kind of wanted to go off and do my own kind of shooting, and I, you know, I turned down, um, sh- you know, gaffing a, a Panic Room. Because I said, oh, David, I just want to shoot a little bit. And he says, well, hey, you know, I got this Nike spot. You you want to want to shoot that? And I go, oh, yeah. cool, you know. So, you know, but it wasn't after like you know truly seeking it, and you know, and that it just sort of uh, fell. But you know, just uh, you know, I just do my homework and just um, you know look at references. And you know, David and I have kind of a pretty common you know eye about things. You know, right. We kind of want the you know the simplest and you know, Benjamin Button's very, you know, you know, naturalistic, you know, and we, you know, we, we looked at some, you know, there was a lot of uh, Andrew Wyeth kind of references, but not really as far as like tone, and but it was more like for, um, like, the sparseness, you know, I guess right. what was kind of represented, and you know, and and Buttons, you'll see, you won't see a bunch of. You know, little knickknacks kind of things and, and cliche kind of items, and you know, mm. no, no, no baguettes running down the street. You know, and the, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> right, right. It, it, and I definitely want to speak to you about Benjamin Button. But um, what, what does cinematography do for you? How does it fulfill you creatively? What's what, what about it? Are you passionate about, and how does it challenge you? Um, you know, I just kind of like how wacky you can kind of get with it and people to let you kind of go. I just think that's kind of, uh, you know, I mean, I think when you, you try to be kind of, you know, conform to kind of a straight kind of, um, you know, I think, I think when you, when you're feeling safe and average, I think you're not doing anything special. You know, I don't right. know. I just, I mean, there's a couple scenes that, you know, I just love, you know, I mean, I have to kind of talk about some of them, but, you know, there's like one scene we'd lit with a bulb in the room and, and, Almost that's wow. it, you know what I mean, and just I mean, and not faking like a source for somewhere else, and then kind of going like, uh, is this cool or is this this you know? Normally we don't do this, you know. And I think you know, I mean those those kind of make you kind of just feel like, wow, that's 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 cool. That looks great, you know. I mean, you know, it's a little bit of a, I don't know. I think bravery pill kind of thing to do, but I just you know when yeah. you do that and it turns out great, you just kind of go like, and then you just have these little rewards to go like, that's cool, you know. Well, that kind of that kind of takes me in two two directions here. What you just said, and, and to tackle the first, I would think that kind of risk taking uh, would uh, come with the territory when it when it comes to working with Mr. Fincher, um, because he I find and many people do that he's one of the most daring filmmakers we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, uh, tell me about that relationship, uh, particularly on on this project. What what is the dialogue that that exists between the two of you? Um, you know, it's actually not that much dialogue. We just kind of get it. You know what I mean? I, it's, yeah. you know, we just, uh, you know, I, you know, I spent, you know, David, you know, we talked about, you know, with the look of the, um, the 
room should look like. You know, we do a lot of location scout photos, and we go like, you know, wow, this just looks great like it is. You know, I mean, mm. you know, my little bit of, you know, comment is like, you know, we have to make that look the same for, you know, four to six hours. You know what I mean? So, unfortunately, the sun, you know, it moves, you know, so things don't stay the same. And, you know, so then here comes lighting and, you know, and all that kind of stuff, you know. And, but I try to still emulate, you know, that that single, you know, that single photo photograph I took, you know, and try mm-hmm. to make the room feel like it's not, you know, not sourced or anything by anything totally artificial, you know, and right. and let actors roam around the space and don't go like, you know, their actor hit actor with light, you know, kind of approach the lighting, you know, which I think is mm. a big mistake, you know. Well, all all of his movies are just so uh, breathtakingly photographed. I mean, I think that. Seven is one of the all-time great-looking movies. Uh, So when you sat down with the script, um, what was the the visual tone? Because it takes place over the course of many decades. So were were there different kind of palettes and different tones that you guys were adapting for each of those? Well, we wanted to kind of, you know, I, I, you know, I did some research of when. You know, fluorescence took over. You know, when they started. You know, and New Orleans was like one of the first cities to have. Like, believe it or not, like, you know, a common electrical system. Oh. And uh, so we just looked at, you know, gas lamps to, you know, when it, you know, Norland stopped with gas lamps and started with electrical lamps. And, and just, and, you know, and fluorescence came across pretty early. I forgot what the year is, but I think I used them, you know, like in the, I always think fluorescents are kind of like a 60s thing, but actually they started, you know, I mean, they're, like, I think they were kind of invented around the 20s or 30s or something like that. And, mm. and, and uh, you know, I have them in, in the period around the 40s. And, you know, so I kind of, you know, I did kind of play a little bit true to form on some of those things, you know, and as far as the eras of, you know, when lighting kind of came around. And, you know, we used some vintage bulbs that were kind of mock-ups of 1914. It was like a 10 sequence, which we used all these kind of, and they're really kind of these warm, golden, you know, completely not efficient, you know, bulbs at all. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's amazingly how dark 60 watts was back in the, you know, the 20s, you know. Yeah. But, um, it's, it's, it, uh, you know, we just look at it from really being natural. I mean, there's a lot of, like, bulbs that actually are really doing a lot of the, you know, the horsepower and lighting, you know. So our right. approach was being as natural as possible, and I really tried to go, like, you know, God, you know, there's, um, you know, see, uh, you know, a scene where, I think it's maybe in one of the pictures, where it's, you know, Bun- Benjamin Button, did you see the movie? Did you see the movie? I haven't seen, I haven't no, seen I the haven't movie either. yet. No, I haven't seen it either. Uh, there's been, like, so many, like, screenings and things like that. It's like... Um, but anyway, there's like this one bulb. I, I live in the mid- I live in the middle of nowhere. So. Oh, okay. Well, that might, that might make sense. Well, anyway, there's like this one bulb right next to his bed, and he's saying goodbye to uh, you know Mr. Odie, and it's like there's a bulb in the room, and uh-huh. uh, beyond maybe a slight little you know little car, you know that's it. You know, I mean, and it's just I don't know. It just feels cool. You know, I don't know. You look at it, and I go like, man, that's that's yeah. But there's also something. It, 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 you, you talk about using minimal lighting. Is that something that the new technology allows you to do more so than the traditional film? I, I uh, think that's a misconception. You know, I okay. think I think that um, I think a misconception is that you know HD you have to you know all of a sudden not light and not think and you know just kind of like hey you know I can get a bulb and I can shoot. You know, you can make those choices. You know, with you know with film as well. I just think that you could see the result much quicker. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So you could say like, oh, well, you know, I'm looking at the screen. All I need is a couple lights. You know, I don't, I don't need this, 
you know, this whole thing. But you still like, I mean, you know, we, you know, I had, you know, the, the top of the, the the button house, you know, and we still had, you know, a bunch of, you know, fourteen twenty Ks on top of it. So, I mean, so right. So I mean, you know, it, and I was still wide open on the thing. So it's not like you need less light, you know. I think, in fact, maybe you might need actually more, you know. Hmm. <laughs> you know. Well, well, what is what is the advantage of 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 the digital technology? Is it uh... well for David? It's just you know, it's for actors and 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 slating and reloads. He just likes right. to kind of be able to kind of when we roll set. There's no there's no slate that's being clapped in front of the the the, the lens. It's it's mm-hmm. basically a you know we just it's just go yeah. and and keep on going oh you that's a nice thought you have keep on going you know well let's yeah. keep on going with this this theme and then you know just, just uh you know without having to kind of go like oh well, well reload you know you know so we just so that's a little bit of part of it and he likes kind of like watching playback instantly watching you know making sure that you know you're not watching an ntsc signal video tap you're watching the full you're watching your kind of your 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 kind of i guess your your yeah. release print, you know, in a way. You know, right. You're looking kind of right. a version of the print. You're watching your negative actually run around, you know, and it's, yeah. you know. So in a way, it re- kind of attracts David, you know. It's really transformed how movies are made. It's just beginning. I mean, you know, we just scratched the surface of what uh, this technology is capable of, do you think? Uh, God, we pushed it pretty far. You know, we pushed it to the brink. <laughs> <laughs> The poor little camera can do, you know. Uh, <laughs> you know. But you know, I mean, yeah, we did pu- we did push it. I mean, it, and it couldn't do everything. There is film on on buttons, you know. I mean, there's okay. there's and there's like slow motion and stuff that we didn't feel like was ready for. For you know, film doesn't do it really well. I mean, digital doesn't do it very well. Film does it pretty beautifully. So there's slow motion scenes and there's uh, scenes where we're kind of in the Caribbean, uh, you know, and and underwater, of course, you know, that's on film, you know. Yeah. And, um, you talked about the the um, the convenience uh, for the actors, uh, and that's part of what attracts uh, Fincher to this technology. How much communication? I've always wondered this. How much communication does a DP have with the actors? Uh, you just want to help them a little bit, you know. I mean, if there's, I mean, I, I didn't have that much with. I mean, I just feel like, you know, Kate and Brad were so pretty amazing. I didn't really have that much of a conversation. Yeah. You know, we just – it wasn't about, like, trying to make them beautiful, you know, or anything like that. So I didn't have to, like, you know, hit your light. I mean, there was kind of nothing of that, you know what I mean? They, they, yeah. They just needed to move in their space to act. So, uh, you, well, know, the, block, and, you know, in blocking, you know, we just you know, kind of figured – it just kind of just self-worked itself out. No, it didn't seem like there was that much of a conversation, you know. Well, with blocking and and, and camera movement and that sort of thing, uh, obviously directors and cinematographers have varying styles. In in your mind, what do you like the camera to do? It, what is its place? Is it to observe, to be an active participant? What are your I thoughts? Like, I on, like that on when that? it's more observational. I hate when it's too much of a participant. I think it draws the audience away from the camera. Mm-hmm. You know, I like when it's Thor there to kind of like, here's, you know, here's the thing happening in this room. I, you know, I mean, David, you know, it was amazing. You know, we shot in that little, there's a little hospital scene where the story's kind of told from. And it's amazing. You could be in one room and the whole, you know, we were there for two weeks. And, you know, we hardly hit the same place twice. <laughs> <laughs> if you can imagine shooting two weeks in a, in a, in a room. It's just like, you know, it's, wow. it's um, 
It's blocking. I, I, I don't like the, you know, I'm not a big, huge fan of wiggly cam, you know, wobbly cam. Right. You know? mm-hmm. I just think sometimes, I just think it pulls it away too much, you know, from, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just not into that. I mean, maybe there's a place or something like that, but, and, and I think it can be subtle, but I, I just think all of a sudden the camera has a personality, you know, at this mm-hmm. point, you know, and I'm not, I don't know, it, this, it, this story doesn't need that. It could take you out of the movie if the, if the camera itself became another kind of active character in it. Mm-hmm. Is what I you're think saying? So yeah, I think so. And I've and I've done it. You know, you know, like you know, handheld and you know, run around. And sometimes when you're looking at the eyepiece, you don't think it's that bad. But when you watch it, like you know, thirty by you know, fifty or whatever it is, you know, you go like, wow, that's nauseating. You know, mm-hmm. right? I'm I'm wondering what the most uh, challenging part of of this project was for you. Well, we dealt a lot with you know, you know, blue screens and you know, like you know, like this mm. the boat itself, the the main you know the tugboat that's in the movie, right? You know that's in blue screen, so it's completely artificial lighting. You know, so we had you know, and it and it has many looks to that 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 boat. There's um, moonlight. There's sunlight. There's and you know, because you're in a boat, it's not always it's sun up from the port, aft, rear, you know, front. It's overcast. It, it's like it's slightly overcast. And I used, you know, we just used different types of lamps for different kind of feelings and moonlight, no moonlight, just strip black, just practicals only on the boat at night and snow. I mean, <laughs> you know, snow at night, snow at day. I mean, there's fog. I mean, just a wow. All the elements. <laughs> All the elements. You know, this boat went through everything, and I think I, I think if you look at it, it's pretty you know impressive. All the different places this little boat you know was. You know, even though it's just on you know the Sony back you know the Sony stage. Right, right, right. When you obviously you've worked so hard at at, cra- at crafting these images and, and this film, and when you're able to sit back and watch it with an audience, as, as I'm sure you have in, in these screenings. Uh, what's the most satisfying part for you uh, of that experience? Uh, it, it just received. It's been received really positively. Everyone seems to have good things to say about the movie, you know. And I kind mm. of, you know, you know, I watch this movie, and it's you know, it's kind of David's first, you know, touching movie, you know. Mm-hmm. And, right. And you know, I get kind of, you know, I'm not the most weepy person in the world, but you know, I, you know <laughs> it can make you a little weepy, you know. The trailer makes me weepy. I won't lie to you. You know, I mean, you know, David's not known for the, you know, the big weepy factor. That's true. Yeah, so. yeah. I am the most. I am the most weepy person in the world. So well, I, I know weepy. for a it's fact. Definitely weepy. You know, my my you know my girlfriend read the you know the original script and you know you know it should be kind of before I did and I'd, all I hear is just bawling tears. You know. <laughs> like, you know well. Can you tell me who, in in your line of work, uh, who inspires you? Uh, you know, I guess for for Harris Avedis, you know, on mm. on the game. Right. Okay. And I, um, you know, I worked with you know Derek Wolski, you know, on um, some some early movies. You know, we did. Uh, you know, I guess you know Crimson Tide and and um, you know The Crow and all those kind of things and. You know, I've learned from both those people, and those are kind of the people that I kind of look after. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. there's Conrad, you know, there's Conrad, and you know, I learned a lot from you know Harris of just how to kind of 
make things kind of not perfect. Don't always like you know kind of you know he kind of messes things up and it kind of just right. help you know and you know and 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 you know from from Derek Wolski I've learned like you know just. You know, watch the set. You know, guys are like panning a lamp in, and all of a sudden, you know, it's not panned through the frame, or it's just panned off, and something's kind of beautiful happening. And you go like, "Wow!" Mm. Just you know, you just watch for those little things. They're like, "Yeah, the light's not aiming at him, but it, and it's kind of off the frame and spilling and doing something kind of weird." But isn't that cool? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It's kind of like those little surprises, and just keep your eyes open for them. You know, and that's kind of what the people that I've worked for kind of taught me. You know, to, to watch that. Well, when you're when you're kind of uh, creating the look you want for this film, drafting it out, do you look to other movies for inspiration, or, or is that you, you don't want to copy, obviously? But it, it, no, it 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 didn't. I mean, sometimes I go, you know, like some movies don't pay attention to continuity of lighting sometimes and sometimes that works or not or you kind of know when to bend it and I've learned kind of when it's important you know uh-huh. those kind of lighting continuity issues mm-hmm. you know, like, um, but you know I, I took you know since we were shooting on digital I took all the at the end of the day I was given a little thumb drive of all the digital stills you know that the that, that mm-hmm. our, you know the Viper took you know and I took it to home and I just kind of did my own color grading, you know, and I posted on a site for David and I to look, and and right. I just found that as I was kind of looking at it, it just sort of it sort of just kind of became its own thing, you know, and um, mm. you know I, I printed a book up, and you know David and I were looking, and we just looked at this thing and go like, you know, this feels right for this, and you know, and we and and I knew that it possibly could change in DI when you have you know the whole thing assembled and and things did change in DI, things you know had. There's a whole like um, I don't know what the sequence is called, but it's um, it's got it's a series of chain of events scene where right. it's just you know, like if this didn't happen, this didn't happen, you know, this set of mm-hmm. circumstances would not have happened, and um, and that had kind of a different color, to, you know, kind of color hue to it. It was more kind of desat blue kind of feel, and that was a little right. bit. And I was kind of initially kind of going with something else. And, but we want to kind of feel like this is kind of a, like a side story. So a lot of the little side stories in Benjamin Button have a little bit of a different look to them. You know, some of the there's a little the little lightning scene where this guy gets you know hit by lightning, and that's definitely like this old vintage film look. You know, right? He he is Fincher is pretty meticulous, isn't he? As a, as a director. Oh yeah, no, very meticulous. I mean, mm-hmm. he's. Uh, I mean. Uh, the DI has been, you know, the the, the digital line where we time the movie has been, you know, for long. I mean, David's been working on this movie forever, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. I, just when I thought it was like four years, I realized he was putting, you know, he was, he was working on this movie before Zodiac, you know. Wow. And, um, and I got Zodiac. hired on kind of last, you know, sort of last minute, you know, a little bit, you know. But, Zodiac, you, you mentioned that, uh, another just masterpiece of yeah, a movie. Of a film. Just wow. A, Dynamo. And I just did the, you know, Harris was the cinematographer on that one. I just did the, you know, just the, the you know, I just did some reshoots of it for, for right. like three weeks of that. But, you know, Harris was the, you know, and, and for me, you know, my goal was to, you know, keep what Harris was doing and, and keep it going for the movie, you know. The interesting thing, you know, Button was more, you know, it's kind of a little bit more, you know, I, you know, it's it's, it's just more me. And I had more, you know, choices to make right. of my own. Mm-hmm. 
This is a uh, – I'm not wanting to jinx anything, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not because this is exceptional work that you've done. But uh, obviously it's award season. Oh, man. <laughs> and, and I'm wondering, what, what does that do to you? Uh, do you try to just leave it out of your mind, or does it fill you with some sense of uh, adrenaline at all? Or? I don't know. I, I, I don't know how to kind of like think about that, you know, because I just kind of go like, if I think about it, will it happen? If I don't think about it, I feel like I had like something, I don't know. I mean, you know, I kind of, I, you know, I kind of been watching like movies that I think are kind of going to be close. And, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and then kind of like, hmm, you know, maybe I don't know. What's, oh God, that's pretty good, you know. <laughs> well, when you uh, just just tell me that you'll call into our show when you're on the red carpet. Uh, yeah, it, <laughs> on the red carpet. <laughs> uh, so what's next for you? What's what's coming up? Uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> interesting, well, interesting enough, I'm um, I'm prepping Tron. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. That's that was just announced as it's going to be shot entirely in 3D. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that is. Yeah. yeah so I, I just came from test today on that. So you know. Wow. Yeah. How how is how is the three how is the 3D working? I I remember when it. Came out oh, in the. Uh, it's much better than when I was a kid watching like you know Metal Storm or whatever that was. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would. I would hope so. When I was like you know whatever. Seven. Yeah, I, I remember going to the store and getting the 3D glasses and, and watching Creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh. On yeah, and it never worked. It didn't look horrible. <laughs> no, My friend's sister cried. It didn't work. I mean, no, yeah. it's, it's 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 gone. You know, you know. It's gotten so much better than it was, you know, back then. But Obviously, yeah. It's a, it's a different kind of movie. I mean, you know, I, no, it's. <laughs> well, you're you're that's that's going to be quite a job right there. Yeah. Uh, well, it's not. They're actually building the, a lot of these sets, which I it's kind of reason why I kind of took it. You know, it's like it's, they weren't doing like you know. I was just worried to be like a be surrounded by blue screen and people just not touching anything real. Mm-hmm. The good thing is about it. Huh. There, there's a real reality to this. Uh, this what they want to do and, and, and build a lot of these sets. And, and I think that's a great, great thing. So. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Well, we wish you the best of luck with, with Tron, and we, we certainly yeah. wish you the best of luck with Benjamin Button. And, uh, I mean, great, great work, my friend. And you're welcome back here on the show anytime you'd like. Anytime. Oh, great, great. <laughs> See, fun. that was pay. That was painless, wasn't it? Yeah, you did fine. You did excellent. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye now. Celebration of the release of The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, the latest masterpiece from David Fincher, and uh, we got an exciting interview coming up. Uh, This was a tough one to uh, schedule because uh, this gentleman is very busy, and he's currently in London. And he called from, uh, he was working in the uh, Abbey Road studio. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we want to thank, uh, obviously, Mr. Desplat and his publicity team. And Actually, it, uh, we could only schedule the interview for a time when I was not available earlier today, so we had our very own home entertainment correspondent, Aaron Adidas, fill in. And he did a great job with the interview, so we want to thank him, too. Yes. I just want to just want to read a couple of these credits uh, uh, for this man. Um, Girl with the Pearl Earring. Mm-hmm. That's a Zuni. beautiful soundtrack. I love that yeah. one, too. 
Syriana, the Painted Veil, the Queen, uh, and and the one that we're very much crazy about, which is Birth. Beautiful. I mean, but I forgot the girl with the pearl. I thought the soundtrack of that was just magnificent. Um, yeah. Yeah. But Birth yeah. is exceptional. And you and I have the same reaction when we saw Birth and it started. And he actually speaks to this in this interview. Just, just incredibly captivating from the beginning. And you actually, for the first time, you kind of perked up and thought, "Man, what music!" Oh, uh, it, it was it was uh, mind blowing. Yeah, I usually mean, m- music is just so kind of, it's a little bland in service of the movie, and it's uh, you can anticipate it and expect what it'll sound like. His scores are very uh, captivating and original. They are. They yeah. really are. We're talking, of course, about Alexander Splatt, and he's one of the few composers whose musical expressions can take a film beyond mere images on the screen and straight up into the heavens. He's been honored to, uh, with significant industry recognition, including a Golden Globe win for The Painted Veil and an Oscar nomination for The Queen, just nominated for a Golden Globe Award for his gorgeous score for Benjamin Button. Mr. Desplat calls us from London earlier today where he's working at Abbey Road Studios, as I mentioned. And in this conversation, he discusses his collaboration with Fincher, the tone of the film's music, and his upcoming projects, which include Terrence Malick's upcoming film, Tree of Life. Wow. And the Meryl, and the Meryl Streep, uh, Julia Child's movie, uh, Julie and Julia. Julia uh, yeah, okay. He worked on as well. And to close the show tonight after this interview, uh, stick around because we're going to premiere a track from his score to Benjamin Button. Uh, so I'm sure everyone will uh, look forward to that. So here it is, Alexander Splat. What drew you first to music? I understand you, you started playing the piano as, as a as a child. What drew you to that? Well, my parents were very uh, fond of listening to a lot of different kind of music, and they uh, they just put the, the, the three children to, to the conservatory to learn how to play an instrument. And um, as my older sister did, when I was five, I went to near piano and I started learning piano. Um, but uh, my sisters were playing piano, so I got a little bit upset, upset of doing the same thing as the girls were doing. So I, I, uh, I liked what my father was listening to, which was uh, Louis Armstrong and Coleman Hawkins. And, uh, and I thought, mm, maybe trumpet would be good. Um, and uh, I started learning trumpet until uh, I had kind of a clash with my teacher and uh, didn't like the teacher very much and uh, switched to flute. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's how I became a flutist. And uh, and one day uh, I just went into composing. Right. You've been composing for film for quite a long time. I mean, you know, American audiences, you know, they might just be, you know, seeing your name for the last four or five years. But you you started composing for in movies in the in the mid '80s project. Well, uh, yeah, I think my, my first short movie was in '82 or '3, and the first feature was in '85 or '86. Yes, mm-hmm. quite a long time ago already. Yeah, I feel like an old man, <laughs> especially with my broken voice from having a cold. Okay. I really sound like I'm 95, <laughs> which yeah. I'm not. Okay, no, you're no, you're still a relatively young man. H- how did you? get into uh film composing it's a it's a passion thing you know mm-hmm. i i was i was a cinephile and going to see movies all the time and uh i started noticing the uh the soundtracks and started uh, 
collecting movie soundtracks. Um, and of course, the rare things were not the French things, because you could find the French things. The rare things were the American things, mm-hmm. like the, 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 the soundtracks of Waxman and, and, and Korngold and North. Um, and I started to, you know, to try and find in flea markets and, and shops these rare records, um, like Taras Bulba or uh, the Vikings, uh, the Vikings or uh, mm-hmm. uh, Picnic, uh, this kind of, of uh, soundtracks. And um, I, I just realized how much the, uh, there was an opportunity of writing good music and associate it to the other passion I had, which was cinema. But it worked. You could really do something that would, some, write something that would stand alone um, and um, I think that's what really brought me to movies, the passion of movies mixed with the passion of music. Was it one score in a particular film, or is it one particular composer that you got hooked on that really got you, you really got into this? I, I can remember many uh, little, little uh, streams that, that made a big river. Um, for example, uh, when I say many streams, Little streams. I mean, like um, listening to Bill Evans playing Spartacus Love theme by Alex North. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go, oh, I really have to get the score of that if I don't have this vinyl, uh, the score of the complete score of uh, Spartacus. Uh, and then you go when you see Star Wars and you think, wow, there's so much there that uh, is near from my classical education, Stravinsky, Prokofiev, Ravel, Debussy, all put into one brain, which is John Williams' incredible talent, and uh, all these amazing melodies, and, and, and so complex, but still fine orchestrations. Um, and, and you see the Hitchcock movies, and you go, wow, the music is so strong and so important, it makes 75% of the movie. And the same with Fellini and Rota. So it, it's um, really many, many little streams that, that fed my big river of love for, uh, for, for movie soundtracks. What do you think of when you hear something almost minimalist by John Williams, like Jaws or Michelle Legrand for, you know, uh, uh, Summer 42 or, 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 or Love Story, where it, it's not, you know, the big orchestral and it's very minimalist. What do you think when you hear well, that? I, I, I love it. I love it too. You know, on, on the many movies I've done in France mm-hmm. and in England, many of them had no orchestra. There was uh, a string quintet or a string quartet with a few players, or a jazz combo. Or and I've, I've I've been trained in doing these kind of scores, actually, these minimal scores. Um, and yes, Incidental Tourist might be one of the best scores of John Williams, but it's not a huge, uh, you know, thing. A huge sound, but just an intimate sound. And of course, uh, Summer of 42, which is jazzy, is, is mm-hmm. fabulous. And uh, I, I, one of my favorite scores by Bernard Herman is The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, which yes. is the more intimate score that he wrote, uh, possibly. And Taxi Driver. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm, I'm rather keen when, and, and happy when uh, the score can drift and, and, uh, and blend with different influences. Uh, the other one I could name is uh, Ascenseur pour le Chafaud, uh, music by Miles Davis for Louis Malle. Right. 
So um, there's, there's many scores that I love and that really influence me in this also very intimate level uh, of sound. And again, uh, I, that's one of the first things I said when I came to America, that in France we don't use many orchestras in the schools. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't want to have an orchestra intruding in a bedroom or in a cafe. <laughs> well, I'm sure you know every composer has their own philosophy of what a, what a score should do, whether it should whether it should accentuate or be counterpoint to a scene. What do you feel a score should do for a film? I think it it has to enhance the imagination, all the hidden emotions. That's the way a score should should work, because what we see on screen, we don't care. We see it. Mm-hmm. We what we don't need to underline it. I guess that's a, a Europe, Europe, more European sensitivity. That what you see, you don't have to re repeat. Uh, and I think actually that's what David Fincher wanted me to do also. Right. Um, to, to or Ang Lee or directors I've worked with, they, they, they want the score to have this quality of of uh, creating another dimension of, of imagination. Well, and Fincher has said that he was a big fan of your of your great score for, for, for birth, and mm-hmm. I'm curious, how did he describe the what he wanted musically uh, for, for Benjamin Button? What was his dictate, if you will, if he had one? Well, you know, birth, the, di- the dictate of the director of the birth, Jonathan Glazer, was, Alexandre, can you write a non-score? And I said, oh, yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> and that's what we tried really hard. A non-score being something that doesn't follow the, the again, what I said, that, that does not repeat the action, but creates another dimension. And that's exactly what David wanted, that the music would um, create a world of emotion that we could share and have empathy with Benjamin Button, the character played by Brad Pitt, mm-hmm. um, and never, ever underline or, or accentuate the love story, but just make it more moving or more desperate or more sorrowful. Mm-hmm. Um, again, create another... I can't say better than that. Just create another dimension, another depth of field. Would it seem that Fincher could, you know, he 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 is a big music guy. Whether he's used, you know, source music in his movies or with music videos and so forth. So it would seem that he really thinks, in almost music terms, his movies have kind of, you could say, uh, movements, if you will. And so. I was wondering, was was it an easy dialogue of between you and him on what he wanted for for the film? You were very saying. very easy, very easy because, as you say, he's trained, he's very experienced, and uh, he's got a good taste, and he has, so when you play something that's not exactly uh, right, he can very quickly analyze and understand why it's not in the, in the right direction. They leave you freedom, but they expect you to surprise them and to, to reach um, uh, a land that they've not explored, that they've not thought of, and that's what they want. They want you to be even more um, brave than they are. Um, and that's, of course, it's a lot of pressure and a lot of anxiety and, and, and questioning, but it's the best way to, to stretch and find, uh, again, Mm-hmm. To, to go to Tetera Incognita. 
I saw the film, and I and I was really struck when, when I was watching the movie that, that here was an epic. I mean, it's, it's an epic film, and it, it spans uh, decades. And yet the score, for a long time, is very delicate. Was that something Fincher said that needed to be hap- needed it to be, or is that just the way when you saw the images, like you know what, these images just need a little, you know, they need the, a light touch versus something, you know, big, if you will. Well, it's it's all that together. Yes, a light touch. Um, also, follow Benjamin Button. Mm-hmm. Which which are his emotions, and he's a very laid back character in the movie. He doesn't he's not very active, you know. He's watching the world around him with a very kind perspective. Mm-hmm. He's very gentle and very. Lo- he, he's a he's a man who who likes to love his man, the mankind, and uh, the music couldn't be aggressive or arrogant. There's something that wouldn't match. So I think the music had to be. I thought the music had to be tender and very delicate. The other, the other element is the, is the sound of the movie, which is very full. Mm-hmm. Uh, could it be because of the environment of music in New Orleans, but also because of the voiceovers mm-hmm. that are there most of the time? Could it be his voiceover or uh, old Daisy, old Kate Blanchett's voiceover, which is narrating the movie? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you had to, to. Uh, how do you say like a little, like a snake? You know the, the, the movie had the music had to to go very 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 in very minimal um, little holes and and blossom a little bit and then hide again and uh, it's like it's yeah it's like going in 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 a, in a mysterious uh, forest. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't go loud. You can't go loud. You have to go you know. You, you got to be very precise and and uh, delicate. Is there one particular musical cue or sequence that you did where you're like, you know what, that that's exactly that's perfect of image and and music coming together in in the film in Benjamin Button. Is there is there a sequence? Well, it, it, it's hard, it's hard for me to say that because perfection is something that we will never reach. Right. Uh, I can I can I can think of moments that move me. Mm-hmm. But it's it's the mix of everything, as you know, mm-hmm. um, and it's also the journey of the movie that makes that at one point you moved. I've seen actually people in the in the in the in the theater uh, crying at moments that were not sad, but just because they had to release the emotion that had taken them for a few uh, minutes uh, on a previous scene, mm-hmm. and on a funny scene they would release the emotion and cry. It's very it was very, very moving. Um, I don't know. I, I like very much the um, the opening, Mr. Gatto, this uh, <laughs> this Cocksmith character. I think it, there's something really magical there. And then I, I like very much the uh, the love theme. I like the, the, the when when the two characters make love mm-hmm. um, when they, when they meet. You know, when, they, when for the for the first time they the two bodies get together. Right. And when and when they, many years later, they get together again. I like these two moments very much. I think that David made it really, made such a beautiful work there, of mm-hmm. holding the emotion back to release it at the very, very moment where you can't hold your, 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 your tears because it's so strong and so moving. Right. Is there a difference 
of scoring in filming for European films versus American films? I, I think you know. I think I think things have changed a lot in the last ten years, fifteen years. I think film music has uh, has new has has is using new tools, not only the electronic, but I mean new tools that come from concert music. Could it be from the very contemporary composers, from Boulez to uh, Stockhausen or, or John Cage, but also from the minimalists, um, Glass, uh, Adams, Reich, um, and the way some composers in the 80s started to try different directions in, in films and, and uh, having not only uh, a huge orchestra playing loud and following the action. If, if today we would we would write a vertigo kind of score on a on a on a movie, it, it would be very weird. It would be rather inappropriate. Um, so I think I think that's the difference between Europe, European scores and American scores have shrinked a lot in that mm-hmm. level. Now, in terms of budget, of course. American budgets are bigger, mm. and the tradition also mm-hmm. is more into having a larger sound of the yeah. score. Uh, but aside from that, I think the directors are more um, of artists of my generation, between 35 and, and, and 45. They have they have this um, sensitivity, sensibility, which uh, which is now sensitivity, yeah, sensitivity, mm. which uh, and this aesthetic, which is more about creating what I said before, another mm-hmm. world, and not just following the action. And that you can find directors like this in America, like Fincher, in, or in England, like Jonathan Glazer, uh, or Peter Weber, or in France, like uh, uh, Jacques Audiard, who's the best French director. Mm-hmm. Um, they, have, they, have this, they share the same desire of, of, a, of a score that would mm-hmm. create another world. You've gotten a lot of critical citations, and, uh, and you did get nominated uh, for the Queen, and you've been nominated, I believe, for Golden Globe for Benjamin Button. So, what would a, a nomination mean again for for Benjamin Button? Well, you know, the the Oscars is is uh, is the top of the tops mm-hmm. of the of the actors of all the technical, uh, you know, below the line uh, um, people, and of course the best of the composers, the best the best of everything. Mm-hmm. So, to be part of that bunch is a tremendous reward to be honored by or, or heard mm-hmm. as, as a musician by uh, your peers your peers peers mm-hmm. is, is, is very this is a strong emotion mm-hmm. uh, um, and and also because the, the history of the Oscars uh, shows the name the names of the composers that I have admired from Maurice Jarre, Georges Delerue, Michel Legrand Mm-hmm. Uh, Francis Lay for the French, Gabriel Yared of course, and mm-hmm. for the, the, uh, the last years, and and all the American composers: Herman Williams, Goldsmith, uh, Emma Bernstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to be to be to be suddenly part of that list is a dream, is a child's dream. So yeah. uh, um, it, 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 it would be marvelous to be nominated again. I would, I would, yeah, I would be more than honored and, and, and happy. It's marvelous. Well, and I want to ask happen. you about. I, I want to ask you about two projects that 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 are in the works, and I'm curious what the, the status of one of them. 
but I've talked to production designer Jack Fisk about the film, and I, I got to ask about Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life, and I'm wondering what those uh, spotting sessions are like because, you know, Malick is notorious for going through many edits of the film, be it longer or shorter, and really, you know, going back and forth. So have, have you started on that, or, or, or what's the status of that? I can't. I can't really comment on that. The only thing I, I can't really comment on that. The only comment I can say, I can give, is that Terence Malick is not looking for a, a movie score. Okay. He's looking for music, and he's just seeking for the music that will fit, um, and that will give the rhythm and the and the and the and the emotion that he's seeking for. Mm-hmm. The rest is not important. Should it start here? Should it start there? I think that's the least of his uh, issues, concerns. That's all I can say so far. Well, I look forward to that. And then the other film, which I assume because it's directed by Nora Ephron, it, it might be a, a, a real change of pace, but uh, Julie and Julia, uh, what, what, how's that score? What's that, what's that score like, working with Nora Ephron? Well, Nora is a very precise writer, Mm-hmm. So, of course, when the music comes to the picture, it's got to be very, very precise, as any comedy should be, because mm-hmm. the pace, as you know, is, is crucial. Um, and the, 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 the precision of every single uh, entry of music is crucial. Um, it, it, it brings me back to my uh, European or French training, because mm-hmm. I've done a few comedies, of course, in France mm-hmm. and in England, where you learn where it's, you know, to, to find the right balance between not being goofy uh, and still being light. I think it's very difficult to write the score of a comedy, very, very difficult, because you always are on a, on a thin thread that can easily uh, put you down if you, if you, if you if you go too funny, too, you know, it becomes very cheesy, and it mm-hmm. kills the movie. So, um, in, and in yeah. terms of orchestration, uh, the movie is set mostly in France in the fifties. So I've used my, you know, my ability to mix jazz mm-hmm. guitar, jazz guitar, and uh, and jazz piano, and uh, uh, accordion, and uh, write waltzes for strings, and you know, this kind of. Uh, I would think that the film would be kind of uh, exciting in that it would be the best of both worlds in that here's an American film, uh, but it's a comedy, but then it's set in the 50s in in France, and so you get to draw on that history, and you really get to, uh, it gives you an opportunity to kind of mix and match a lot of stuff that you, that have had influenced you up to this point. Yeah, well, it, it was really a lot of fun to do, uh, and and as you say, using all the all my all my tools, all my colors, because I've got many tools in my bag that I've I've tried through the years, and I I've tried on this one to mix some of them and, and put them together in a new in a new order, and uh, I think Nora was very happy. I think it works very well, and uh, uh, and the movie is really really funny. Mary Streep is fantastic, and Amy Adams. Is really sweet and, and it's, it's a great movie. It's a beautiful movie. It's, it's moving. Funny enough, it's movie. Move. It's a moving movie and uh, mm-hmm. very emotional and still very very funny. Like Nora Ephron knows uh, to do. Well, I look forward to it. I gotta ask real quick, uh, just because I'm a, 
major music. I'm a major music fan and critic also, along with being a film critic. Mm-hmm. And that you're, uh, you, you said you were calling from Abbey Road Studios. Uh, yeah. So what's it like being? You know, I'm sure you've you've been to all kinds of studios and all over the world, but what's it like being in that studio with that history, the Abbey Road Studio? That's pretty amazing. Well, Abbey Road Studios. When you look on the on the walls, you see uh, pictures of all the great uh, conductors, Karajan and uh, Daniel Barenboim playing with Jacqueline Dupré, and uh, and you know that John Williams is a ghost of the in these walls, and uh, uh, a photo of Charlie Basset right. in the 60s in, in her pink dress. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's a historical mm-hmm. building. It's like going to a museum. You, you're, in a, you're in a kind of a temple here. Mm-hmm. So you try to learn a lot mm-hmm. and behave and be the best as you can because these people are looking at you from... <laughs> from every every corner of the corridor. That's it for this episode of Movie Geeks United. For additional episodes of our anniversary series, visit moviegeeksunited.net.